Welcome to Leaders and Learners. My name is Tanya McKenzie, and you can find me at the intersection of public relations and leadership. Join us as we talk to organizational leaders, elected officials, experts, authors, artists, and personalities sharing their stories, talking about how they got to where they are and how they continue to learn and lead the way. So without further ado, let's get into it. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Leaders and Learners, where we all know that the best leaders are lifetime learners. Today, we are going to bring you a story from an amazing author who has survived some of life's most intense traumas and challenges. With it being uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, I definitely will be tapping in on more trauma, um, trauma survival, and then Also, how we build resilient communities, because I think at the end of the day, how we deal with not only our own traumas, but the people around us, not always knowing their whole story, you know, how do we build a society that actually supports people that have been through some type of trauma and trying to move on without re-traumatizing them? Yes, as crazy as this world can be, and as nasty as you can see uh, people being uh, on TV, know that there are people in the world that really want to be at peace and build communities that have peace and help to build more resiliency. You never know what someone has been through. So the least we can do is have cities, communities, neighborhoods that support those that have been through trauma. Everybody has a level of trauma, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, okay? You may think because you had two parents and they worked and everything was great, life, you didn't have trauma. There are so many things that can be categorized as trauma and not recognizing that until you get older and those things start to bother you kind of leaves you a step behind. So what I want you to do today is tune into our author, listen to some of the things that she has gone through. Even as a parent, you can go through trauma and you wind up reliving things that you didn't even know were traumatizing to you. But it is my honor to bring this author to you today straight from Australia. Yes, she. it is almost five o'clock in the morning where she is at and she is here with us and I am so proud to have Miss Denny Meek. How are you? Good, Tonya. I'm good, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you for being up, taking the time. We absolutely appreciate it. I want you to go ahead and hop in and let the people know a little bit about you, your story, and why you wrote your book. So my book is called Still Standing, and it's about major life challenges that I've experienced, including domestic violence, the development of fully blown anorexia nervosa in my daughter, the death of a baby and the deaths of two of my teenagers several years apart to suicide, plus a very long passage of grief. I wrote initially for other bereaved parents so that they would know that they were not alone. And I wrote also for anybody who's never experienced any of these losses Um, so that they would be inspired to pull out their own strengths in their own life when they needed to. Mm. That is incredibly important. Your mess can be someone else's message. I always think when people don't share their story, even though it might be tough, when you don't share your story, it's almost a level of selfishness because Mm. you're also not sharing 
your resolve. You're not sharing yeah. your ability to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're not sharing yeah. the lessons that you've learned. So then you, others are out there kind of bumping their head up against a wall, trying to figure it out. Or um, as we've seen, there's been a rise in, in suicide. So I'm going to jump right into this. And I, and I know it's, God, it's, it's heavy, but with everything that you have been through, was suicide ever a thought for you? Look, honestly, I think it's a thought for most people who live a human life. I think it's crossed most people's minds as an option. And I think that it's actually important for us to know that we have a way out so that we can choose to stay. Um, you know, thinking about it is different to contemplating it. But it's a subject that I've had to think about a lot because it's in, imposed itself on my life very, very personally in the deaths of my children. So what kept you from moving forward with those thoughts? I was uh, a parent. I am, I am still a mother. And every time that I've lost a child, I had another child at home that I needed to live on for. And it's still that way to this day. My son is asleep in the room next to me. <laughs> he lives with me. Yeah. And that's, that's, he's the one I live for. I went to a book signing recently uh, with a lady named Jackie Goucher, amazing woman. One of her uh, biggest um, missions, one of her most impactful missions is to get parents to parent, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a level of passive parenting that happens sometimes. We just kind mm -hmm. of are oblivious and living in our own adult world, but has the loss of your children, one and the other, made your resolve as a parent, the ones that remain even more in, intense or impactful? Like how, how has it changed your relationship or your parenting with the one that you have remaining? Like talk to me about that feeling, that transition. That's a difficult question for me to answer because I think that I think that I was a decent parent before mm -hmm. I lost my children. Um, and it's very hard to parent on, especially as a single parent, when you are grieving. There's a lot of guilt involved that, and it complicates your relationships with your surviving children because of that. It's a question I haven't been asked before, actually. <laughs> but... Uh, does it make them more precious? It does in a way because you are surviving the impossible with them. You're in it together. Uh, I know that I was very close to my eldest son because he's the one who was alive when we lost my second son. So I felt like we had been to war together and that he knew aspects to our lives that nobody else did. And I, and I have looked at the other surviving children after that my daughter and my youngest son after my eldest son's death and I felt like we had been to war together and nobody understood it I feel that way with my youngest son I don't know that I'm a better parent I think I'm a bit overprotective and a bit indulgent so mm. yeah do you think we sometimes don't indulge in parenting like we should like really just sit in the moments that we have with our children and enjoy so. 
in that moment, always thinking about what's next or career or, you know, whatever else is going on with us, like indulging, what does that feel like to you these days, indulging in parenting? It still makes me feel guilty. Mm. <laughs> you know, that good old parenting guilt where you feel like you just can't get everything right. But those those moments in between that you grab and you have uh, a connection that, that burns itself into your memory, they're the ones you live for. They're so precious. Mm. Mm. You're going to read a passage for us um, okay. from the book. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and do that. Okay. So this is from uh, a chapter called Pursuit of Perfection. And this is about discovering that my daughter was developing an illness, uh, fully blown anorexia nervosa. I saw it coming when she was nine. I was picking up little details and they were rattling me to my core. If we choose our paths, then my daughter chose a massive challenge for hers. She was still a child when the crows began circling conspiratorially overhead, their vaguely identified issues mocking my powerlessness to stop them. The disquiet of watching Ali eating more the year Simon was gone, wondering about the father absence in her life, about the effects of living with domestic violence, the former stepfather's issue with fat women, my own anxiety and single parenting, little negative things she'd say, little worries she'd express, her high achieving drive, her perfectionism, her artistic nature, her keen interest in her idols, her over interest in food, diets and exercise, all homing in on her with too much intensity, like magnets with her name on them, no one knew how much the crows rattled me. The first time you've lost a child, that in itself can be unbearable for many. Obviously, when that happened, you didn't see what was coming, right? But talk to me about that first time um, that you lost a child. How did you move past that? I think you know, the death of a baby is a disenfranchised loss and that was one of the biggest pains about it. It was not being acknowledged as, say, the loss of an older child. I was amongst people who, it was. this is the 80s, so grief was not understood as well as it is now. I think as a society we still need to understand a lot more about it and as a society, face our uh, fear of death, our reluctance to face our own mortality. But then it was, it was incredibly painful in itself. I'd like to just share a bit about my son's story. He was born with a heart abnormality that wasn't picked up until he was eight days old. Um, we were transferred by ambulance to the capital city, two hours north. And after continual testing for about 16 hours, he was diagnosed with this very rare heart condition. They told us he would need open heart surgery by the end of that week that carried a 30% risk. But they said without 
the surgery, he would most certainly die. So obviously we went ahead with the surgery and it was a success. He, Joseph got through the surgery and we climbed a big mountain of medical milestones to his recovery and were able to take him home aged one month. Nothing could replace that. That mm. was absolutely invaluable. Uh, sometimes things don't go as planned and it was unforeseen that he started to get sick again. We found ourselves back at the hospital in Brisbane after a few weeks and they were searching for the problem. But very unexpectedly in the middle of one night, they called me to his bedside in intensive care <coughs> where he died. It was about two in the morning. And it was a very surreal moment for me. I had never come face to face with death. Joseph was two months old, I was 25. And it's, it's etched, it's burnt into my memory. The desperation I felt running up there, begging him, please, please God, please, please let him, let him survive, please don't let him die. And, and so because it was an unexpected death, that's another aspect of the grief. It was a very painful loss and it was very painful because it was a disenfranchised loss. So four months later, I fell pregnant with my third child and those circumstances forced me to keep going. Uh, I grieved uh, during the pregnancy, but I also got on with life. Mm. It's interesting the way you sort of live in parallel dimensions at the same time. Mm. I, I'd like to say that I think that you don't really get over the death of a baby because it is disenfranchised. Our society doesn't make a lot of room for it. And, um, yeah, I still hold my son in my heart. Here's my question for you. And you know we're going through the everlasting debate here in the United States. If you knew uh, prior to your son's birth or while you were early in your pregnancy that this was, you know, going to be such a tough life, mm -hmm. would, would you have continued through with your pregnancy? And whose choice do you think that should be? It's a good question. That sort of question wasn't being asked at the time and we're very influenced by our culture. Mm -hmm. So it was not the sort of uh, question that I would have had the cultural support to ask myself at the time. Mm. Um, Joseph was not uh, gearing up for a life of pain with that heart abnormality. It was a... It was a, you know, you fix it and that's it. Uh, whereas a lot of babies born with heart abnormalities need further surgery as their body continues to grow. His was meant to be, you know, addressed in that one surgery and it usually is with his condition. He had a 1 in 20,000 condition and uh, it's meant to be addressed with that surgery. <clears throat> so he wasn't heading for a life of pain and had I known that, I think I probably would have taken the risk. Um, it was very difficult for him. I appreciate that it was. But had it had it followed its 
expected trajectory, I think that I would have gone ahead with it because I just would have felt that I, I could have loved him for the rest of his life. And, and by today's standards, Tony, that sounds selfish. Not really. And, and I actually don't think there's an opportunity to even be judgmental in, in yeah. that situation. Yeah. You know, I think everybody has to determine what they can deal with. Yeah. And placing burdens on individuals that you, you don't, you don't, there's no place for that. Mm. Um, me telling you what you should endure or not. You know, yeah, yeah. I think there's a level of human humility that we've yeah. lost is recognizing everyone can handle a different level of weight when it comes yeah. to emotional decisions. Yeah, we are okay. not. We are not the same. No, so. we're not. No. Heesh, with all that, I want you to talk to me about your teenagers. Um, Losing your teenagers and, you know, you've gone from losing your baby to losing your teenagers. You've been with them longer. You've, you have expectations, you have hopes, you have dreams, you have visions of what their future looks like. Maybe even being a grandmother one day, like talk to me about that loss. I have accepted by now that I'm, I'm not going to be grandmother. Um, I saw that quite a while ago, that loss doesn't, doesn't burn me as much as the loss of my own children. Um, there's a lot that comes with grief, the death of a child. There's a lot in your future that you have to mourn. It's, it's my children that I still miss. It's the fact that three of my four children are not on the planet and that's a hard thing to learn to live with. I've had time to learn to live with it. And that's that's a very big ask because there are a lot of unanswered questions, especially with suicide, to come to terms with. And uh, to learn to embrace the mystery rather than the mastery of life as everybody around me is doing, learning how to manifest, how to build business, how to live a successful life. I, I'm you know, learning how to live with unanswered questions about suicide and how, how are difficult things allowed to happen and so many of them in one person's life. Living with the deaths of my teenagers, the suicides of my teenagers is a, a lonely journey. I think that suicide continues to carry more weight than belongs to it. I think it carries the weight of our fear of death, our reluctance to face our own mortality. I think um, we need open discussions about it, such as we're doing here now. Thank you, Tonya. Um, yeah, I think that um, our governments and societies could do a lot more to address mental health issues. I think uh, having open discussions about um, the stigma, the scale and the, the subtlety of the stigma of mental illness is really important. Uh, those with professional expertise and partnership with lived experience, <coughs> implementing trauma-informed 
workplace policies, mental health days. I think there's a lot we can do and I'm also in this, I'm aware that I'm uh, drawing um, assumptions from people about the connection between mental illness and suicide, which I don't always believe is legitimate. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who take their own lives who do so not, not because of mental illness. I was telling my son recently that I wrote, I read a book when I was a kid um, in, I think I was a freshman maybe, and it was called Tunnel Vision. And it was about a teenage suicide. I don't know if you've read it. Uh, and I was explaining to him how even reading that book can teach you a lot about life, right? Tunnel vision. So I believe, I say that to put a exclamation point on what you said is, there's not always a connection between suicide and mental, uh, mental illness. Sometimes people just have tunnel vision and they don't see outside of that one thing that they feel is unfixable um, or just so painful, mm. irreversible and undeniable. Mm. There's mm. tunnel vision. And I think as a society, we've gotten a little bogged down on what we think we should be focused on. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to the bigger picture yes like if you know they see the bigger picture or how you get them to refocus and cut out the tunnel vision yes. it's not always mental illness no it's not and i think that um there's a lot involved there are lots of layers to suicide um my eldest son had a very sensitive personality you know, and I think the, he found this world a harsh place. Mm. Things have been changing for males since he was here. Um, I'm seeing a lot of fantastic hands-on fathering and stay-at-home dads doing a really great job. The, the domestic violence rates stay the same and the suicide rates are alarming. So those statistics are in our face, no matter what we see going on. But... I think that, uh, you know, as a society, we are addressing, are addressing more what it's been like, especially for women, but what it's like for men as well, and uh, encouraging a place for their nurturing sides. My, my son has been gone for two decades now, my eldest son, and at that time I know that he found the world a harsh place. That was just his sensitivity and there's not much you can do about that. I mean, I... In one way, I felt a failure <clears throat> to not teach my children how to be in this world with their personalities. Um, my son Simon missed a father figure in his life. He he greatly missed that, and yeah, it was a, it was a tough world for him. So, and he was always looking at the bigger picture. <laughs> yeah, he he wanted to understand why things were allowed to happen for him as they did. He had a he had a difficult last few months. Mm. He had all his life he'd wanted to own a Valiant Charger, the car, the Valiant Charger, and he and he acquired that in the last few months of his life. And I wrote a poem in Still Standing called Simon's Charger. Mm. And it's a love story between a, a young man and his car. <laughs> but uh two and a half weeks before he died, 
an old lady ran into his charger and it was totaled. And he, I know the philosophical person that he was, he was saying, why, why did I lose my pride and joy? You know, this wasn't expensive for me at the, at the time. Why was it a right for me to lose that? And then there were a few other things that were happening at the time too. And on the last day, final straws, I would call them. And I, I know that he would ask <coughs> why, in the bigger picture, why? And that's really hard. It's a very hard psychic pain, that why, because you don't always find the answers. Talk to me about the domestic violence uh, that you write about in your book. Yeah. So I was involved in two relationships. My, my main two relationships uh, in, involved domestic violence. And uh, in my marriage, it didn't happen very often. I knew my husband loved me, but I wasn't going to continue to live with that. Uh, we were together for eight years. <coughs> and then uh, I finally left. And then about a year and a half later, I entered a subsequent relationship. And there, the abuse, the domestic abuse was worse. It was verbal as well as physical, and it was far more frequent. And the the verbal abuse is insidious. It, it, it permeates the cracks. You tell yourself it's not affecting you, uh, you're stronger, but it does affect you and you just don't realise it. Uh, it's a psychological type of abuse that's very damaging, damage you can't always see. I'd also like to uh, quote a statistic that I came across in my research, and that is that children who live with domestic violence are four times more likely to develop a mental illness, mm -hmm. and they are six times more likely to commit suicide. That was a statistic that shocked me terribly. Do you they think that if some of this information, how do I, how do I say this? The statistics on the damage that can be done when kids experience drug addiction, um, domestic violence, abandonment, some of these normal things that kids are starting to experience on a regular basis now, which breaks my heart. Mm. But if more background information is shared about the results of these traumas that kids experience and witness as they're growing up, how it actually can impact them. Do you think that people, and I want you to be honest with me, do you think that people would change their behavior, get help for their addiction, get out of domestic violence situations if they really understood how it would affect their children later in life or do you feel like, and even looking at your own personal experience, as sad as it is that these things can affect a child and who they become as an adult, you still would not have been able to break out of the domestic violence situation that you were in. Like, does that type of information affect how you, how much, how much you put up with this, how long you keep yourself in these situations? Was there anything that could have made you get out of these situations faster? 
I think that this statistic that I came across is extremely sobering. Uh, but would it, have, uh, would it have changed your yeah, yeah. choices? I think that there's more involved in this domestic violence situation. I think that we have to dig deep, very, very deep, right to the foundations of patriarchy um, in order to address it fully. Relationships of power between men and women. I think that the whole world since COVID is questioning relationships of power. I think that they are coming under question on every level from politics um, and, you know, organisations where power is in imbalance right down to personal relationships with narcissism. I think this is a question that's being asked worldwide at the moment and I think that subjects like domestic violence have to come into that discussion in order to be addressed properly. So I don't think the statistic alone would do that. Um, I am putting that statistic out because it affected me so greatly and I hope that it helps. I hope it sobers people up. It's, it's left with women. This is my issue. It is left with women. The weight of this question, do I stay, do I leave, what happens, you know, the children, do they, everything. Socially, do they live without a father in the home? All these questions are left with the woman. I, I acknowledge that domestic violence affects men as well. But I think that the uh, financial repercussions are more challenging for women. Um, and I, I think it's it's an imbalance in itself that the woman is left to consider all the repercussions when when a lot of the time it's the man who's the abuser. I appreciate you um, being transparent about that. I think, you know, everyone's not going to be honest about that one to say, yeah, I know, I know how bad that would have been. If I would have known how it would have, you know, traumatized my children and put them in a bad situation, I would have gotten myself out of that situation earlier. Mm -hmm. The truth is that's not going to be the changing factor. No. So it's I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, let the people know how they can get their hands on your book and how they can stay connected to you and follow mm -hmm. your journey and uh, help spread the word. Because I think, you know, it's, it's important that we all know that solutions like this and opportunities to connect with those that have moved past these situations and stay connected to others that might still be struggling. Yeah. Uh, because many of us have and continue to deal with the death of a child mm. and not sure, you know, I've watched my mom's friends and friends of mine that have lost children. And it's, you know, sometimes you're there and sometimes you're just in this fog I yeah. I can't believe this is my life. Yeah. Yeah. In a cocoon, in a grief cocoon with your child. Not not on not on this dimension. I felt like I was on another planet. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. But you are a survivor and you are a blessing to others. So please share Thank with you. the people how they can connect with you, get their hands on this book, and continue to follow your journey. So my book is available at all good bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 
Demics, Booktopia, etc., or on my website, which is www.dennymeek.com. So D-E-N-N-Y-M-E-E-K.com. There is a page there that will take you to the purchase of my book. And if you buy it that way, you will get a personally signed copy. Yeah. I love that. Thank you again for being here. Please stay in contact. Um, Do you plan on touring? Will we see you in the United States? Talk to me about that. It's looking that way, Tanya. (laughs) California's got to be a stop. Uh, you know, you got to let me know once you are on Leaders and Learners, you are always part of the Leaders and Learners family, and we want to be there to support you and make sure that you have all the love you need to get through every appearance. Because what I do know for sure is continuing to talk about this as beneficial as it is for other people, it's a little heavy. And mm. sometimes you just need that extra support. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on Leaders and Learners. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for showing up to the podcast where we all know that the best leaders are lifetime learners. When you get a sec, take a moment, leave a comment. What do you think about today's episode? And share it with someone that you know could use the gems that were dropped today. Follow and subscribe. You don't want to miss who's coming up next. You never know who could show up here and what they could say. For your professional needs, marketing, PR, communications, and leadership, make sure you follow us on all social media platforms at Sand and Shores or hit us up at sandandshores.com. Again, thanks so much for showing up. We appreciate you and we'll see you soon.